And now, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 2 and verse 6. And we noted that uh, the first uh, two chapters and then a little bit are all introduction. But uh, what we actually see is kind of a double introduction. So from verse 1-1 till the end of chapter 2, verse 5, um, where they had met with the angel of the Lord, we talked about last time. That's sort of one introduction. And then at verse 6, we start a second introduction. And I think the, the way to think about this, the difference is you have sort of an account of what's going on and a sort of a summary of the people's compromise and turning away from what God wanted them to do. And in the second introduction, uh, you have sort of God's perspective on this, a theological explanation of what's happening and what God is doing in the midst of this. And so we're going to look at the first part of this second introduction today. Uh, and then after the holiday, we'll come back and do the second part of um, of this second introduction. So for this morning, we'll begin at verse 6 and go through to verse 15 of chapter 2. This is the word of God. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had, been, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless his word to his people as we consider it together this morning. I don't know if any of you had the misfortune of watching the Indiana basketball team play Kansas yesterday. Um, a great example of how you can't just show up and put on these fancy candy-striped uh, warm-up pants and think that that somehow is going to automatically uh, get you any success against a good opponent. As it looked like we showed up and, uh, and uh, didn't play. And so the result was an absolute whooping uh, that went on for just about the whole time. And uh, often this is the case. Uh, we, we like to think uh, that we can sort of ride in on the coattails of others. Uh, but it isn't that way. We have to actually do it ourselves, And it's very true 
in spiritual terms as well. We had a person drop by on the church uh, wanting something the other day. And so while he's asking me for something, then he's quickly telling me about this relative of his who was a pastor of a little country church. Maybe it's because I'm a minister, people feel like they should tell me these things. I feel like the, the, the idea though is that, hey, I have a relative who was a really serious Christian and therefore that, that should be worth something, right? I should, get, I should get a little consideration here. And of course, that's not the way this works at all. And it's tempting to think that way. Uh, you children might be here thinking that, well, you know, my, my, my older sibling is a really mature Christian, and uh, I take great confidence in that. Um, but, but understand uh, that the way the Lord works is that you, you can't ride on somebody else's faith. You can't say, my spouse is really serious about her faith, and so that, that, how some, that somehow gives me some credit with God. It does not work that way. God calls every person and every generation to serve God faithfully, himself or herself. And our passage is about an intergenerational change. And and during this change of generations, the faith is not carried forward faithfully. And it's a disaster what happens. And so it serves as a reminder to you and to me that every generation must serve God in its own day, but that this is something you and I can only do through the one who took away God's anger from us, that is, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how this comes out in our text, God willing. Children, if you want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of Joshua, what kind of a man was Joshua, and then what does it tell us about the people who came after Joshua? If you'd like to follow along, there's an outline in the bulletin. You'll see the first thing we want to notice there is that the work of God's kingdom is multi-generational. So where we began here at verse 6 is a flashback actually to the end of the book of of Joshua. So verse 6, and when Joshua had dismissed the people, The children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And what's confusing is he's not dismissing them there from this meeting uh, with the angel. That's actually another time, another place. What what this is referring to and why we say that verse 6 starts a second introduction, go back in the book of Joshua, (coughs) excuse me, if you just hold your finger there and look back at chapter 24 of Joshua and look at verse 28. And this is after Joshua's called all the people together and they've sworn a covenant with the Lord to serve the Lord. Verse 28, so Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. (coughs) Excuse me. Now it came to pass after those things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. You see, it's the same thing we have in our text. It's taking us back to the end of the book of Joshua and it's starting over going over what's going on with this group of people that God had brought into the promised land and left with this assignment. Now, back in our text, uh, it tells us that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. But, uh, so this generation was faithful, 
They served God. This is the generation that had seen God bring them in and give them all these victories over the Canaanites that had established them in the promised land. And it said then that Joshua was buried in verses 8 and 9 of our text. He was 110 years old. They buried him within the border of his inheritance. So Joshua was laid to rest in honor. He'd completed his work. He'd, he'd subdued the area where his family was to live. And so he owned it and he was buried in it. And so this is, a, this is job well done. This is work completed. Remember, his job had been to bring the people across the Jordan River into the promised land and then to fight against the, the areas of stronghold, the stronghold areas of the Canaanites and to establish a nation there. But all along the borders, there were still lots of the Canaanites there and the people were to go out then and to subdue their little piece of land and uh, that was the job that they were left with. And so it's important to understand Joshua and his generation had a job they did it, but that job was just part of the bigger project that God was doing. Because God is at work building a kingdom. And his kingdom is going to cover the entire world. And, and you see the scripture tells us how God is doing this. He chooses a man, Abraham. And he calls him out of the world. I'll be your God. You'll be my, my people. And he builds Abraham into a large family. Remember when he was called, Abraham had no children. And then he sends Abraham's family down into Egypt. And then while they're sort of protected there within the nation of Egypt, that family grows into a nation, maybe two million people. And now they're too big to live within the nation of Egypt. So now God is bringing that nation out of Egypt through the wilderness and he's giving them their own land. And so that's what he's done through the book of Joshua. They've fought for and secured their own land. But there's a lot left to be done. They're, they're to establish themselves as a kingdom. They're, they're to have kings that will grow. We know that eventually God's going to send these people all over the world in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And then when the Messiah comes, God is going to use these people uh, to, to bring the gospel all over the world. And God's plan is still unfolding. The reason that you and me are here today is because that kingdom is still being built and that work is still being done. And so do you see how, of necessity, this work cannot be done by one generation? It's not that kind of a job. It's a job that has to be done over many generations. And this is so critical for us as we understand how it is, in fact, that the Lord works. Our first pastor who came here in 1827, uh, James Ferris, was the headmaster of a very prosperous school in South Carolina, the Pendleton Academy. And he had a good job. He was well provided for. He had land. And, uh, and was well off, and he left all of it. He walked away from his job, he walked away, sold everything, and, and came here, which was literally the frontier in those days. And he did that not because that was going to be the most comfortable thing for his family in the short run. He did it because he was looking at the long term. He, he was looking at the long term. What's interesting is there are many, many people in this county who are descendants from this man. He raised six children. Four of his sons were pastors who all grew up here. But 
He was willing to sacrifice in the short term because he was taking the long view of what was important. And he understood having his family grow up in a slave state was not going to be a good thing. And it would be better for them to be here in a free state. But you see how often it is that our society and even your own thinking is bent towards what is, what is good in the moment. What are the short-term benefits of this or that course of action? And this passage reminds you and me that God is working on the order of generations. And we have to take the long view of what God's doing and of what's important. You see, training our children, not only that they would love God, but that they would someday raise their own children to love God. That that we're not just thinking about our lifetime, but how the faith gets transmitted beyond our lifetime. So that our, our desire would be when Jesus comes again, there's still a Reformed Presbyterian church here. There's still our descendants here worshiping God whenever it is that Jesus comes again. And that kind of thing doesn't happen if we don't take that perspective, a longer term perspective on what God is doing. And it would encourage us to be patient. It would also encourage us not to panic when we look around and things look bad for the church in this or that particular place. Because God's working on a much different time scale. The kingdom of God is growing, working on a generational level. But secondly, we see here that each generation must serve God in its own day. Uh, The fact that God is working over many generations uh, doesn't take away from the fact that God needs people serving him in each and every generation, generation after generation. Uh, We see here in verse 10, uh, the first part of it, when all that generation had been gathered to their father. So Joshua's generation, they had fought the battles. They had seen God work in amazing ways And that generation was gathered to the Lord. They died. And so this raises the question, okay, who's coming along next? Who is going to keep going, serving the Lord? The second half of verse 10, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So here comes a a new generation, and they're described as not knowing the Lord or his work. Now, now what does that mean? Do you think that their parents didn't tell them what God had done? Uh, The the book of Joshua says they defeated 31 kings. So if you consider that they lost that one skirmish, uh, they were 31 and 1 in their battles and barely lost any soldiers in all that time. The, the, the work that God did was truly amazing. And there's no doubt they did tell their children about what God had done to put them into this land and to give them this place. So they knew it. But when the Hebrew uses the word know here, it, it's in a different sense. It's, it's talking about experiential knowledge. It's the difference Uh, Children, I hear it's going to be very cold in another week. And you may look outside and see the thermometer, and it may say zero degrees. And you may say, I know it's cold out there. But that's different than if you actually walk outside 
and all the mucus in your nose freezes and uh, you feel the sting on every piece of exposed skin, then you say, I know it's cold out here and it's a, it's a different kind of knowing. And, uh, and that's what the author's getting at here. They, they knew about the work of God, but they hadn't seen it for themselves and they hadn't grasped what it meant. They hadn't taken it on board. They didn't respect it and they didn't appreciate it for what it was. And uh, that was a problem. And it's because of things like this that, that there is a well-known saying that God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Do you understand uh, what we mean by that, children? Um, you think about your grandma or your granddad. What makes, you, uh, your, your, what makes you a grandchild? It's the fact that one of your parents right, is the child of your grandparent. But that's not the way it works for God because we cannot know God because our parents know God. You should give thanks that your parents know the Lord. Uh, there are tremendous blessings in your life because your parents know the Lord. But you don't know the Lord just because your parents know the Lord. You have to know the Lord yourself. You have to put your faith and your trust in the Lord. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. And we're reminded the generations come and they go, right? The, the baby boomers who are here, um, then the Gen Xers and the Gen Y Millennials and the Gen Zs, and I don't even know what they call you today, but the generations come and they go and God needs his people to serve him in every generation as he does this multi-generational work. So God is building a multi-generational kingdom, but each generation is called to serve him in its own day. The problem we see thirdly is that cultural assimilation is always a looming threat. This is always, always an issue. Uh, verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what happened in the next generation. And this is not a subjective evaluation of what they did. This is not that they uh, didn't live up to the expectations of the other generation or that they didn't live up to their own expectations. This is God saying in his eyes, according to his standard, they did what was objectively evil. And the evil they did, it describes there, is that they served the Baals and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. They turned away from the God who had saved them who had made them into a people and had brought them into this land, and they did it so that they could serve Baal. And since this is going to come up repeatedly in this book, we need to talk for just a minute about what this means. So uh, there, are, there, there were many different forms of Baal worship in ancient Canaan, uh, but the idea was that Baal was the storm god. And so that Baal, during certain times of the year, would cause the rain to come. He would cause the sun to shine. He would cause the crops to grow. He would cause the livestock to reproduce. He would cause um, the families to have children. So he was, in effect, a fertility god. 
And Baal's consort was Asherah, or the plural Asheroth as it's here. Uh, And so uh, the way this worked was that when Baal and uh, Asherah got together, uh, then there was fertility and the land reproduced. And so the whole religion, it's not a religion of faith where you can trust uh, your God to do what he is supposed to do. You have to coerce God into doing what uh, you need him to do for you. So the religion is built around certain fertility rituals and things like that in, 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 designed to encourage Baal and Asherah to procreate and to then uh, send rain and the harvest and all of that. And so this got the Israelites involved in some very uh, heinous practices. But, but you understand how, how this works. You, well, why in the world would they do this? Well, they come into this land and they have been nomadic shepherds for the last 40 years. And they come into this land and, and it's a wonderful farmland and there's lots of opportunity to grow things. And they're asking their neighbors, hey, how, do you, how does this work here? How do, you, how do you have a successful farm here? And they're going to say, well, if you want a successful farm, this is what you do. You worship Baal, and this is how Baal is worshipped, and this is how you get rain, and this is how you get livestock. And if you want to be successful here, this is how you do it. This is how you fit in. And clearly, this is what they were trying to do. It's not, it's not entirely clear that all of them were, uh, were just turning away from God. I, I think some of them thought, well, I can serve Yahweh in a culturally sensitive way uh, by adding the Baal worship to it. And so to try to fit in with my neighbors. So this was the evil that they did. The other thing that they did, if you look at the end of this second introduction, which is in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So in addition to worshiping their gods, they began to intermarry with the Canaanites. And if you want a way to assimilate uh, people quickly into a different, uh, in this case, non-biblical type of uh, culture, this is one of the most powerful ways to do it. This is why uh, young people, the Bible warns against this, against marrying unbelievers because of the great spiritual danger that comes from it. I put a couple of cross-references in your bulletin. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul warns, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness. Or he says again in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Uh, That God is very clear about this, that uh, this is one of the most important things we do in times of building uh, a culture That's the culture of heaven and not the culture of the world. Uh, One of the things I was really struck with in some of my visits to the church in China is the fact that there are so few uh, Christian men in the church uh, that these poor women are hearing verses like this and they're thinking, uh, there's no hope for me. 
and, uh, and what do I do? And, and, and should I go ahead and compromise in trying to sort through uh, uh, the, the, uh, the challenges there, the temptations there? And for these sisters to be reminded that no, uh, it's, it's better to bear the, the, the challenges of being single if I don't want to be single than to be married uh, to an unbeliever. Now God is gracious sometimes and he calls a person to faith through uh, his or her spouse. Uh, but the Lord says that's not to be our aim, that we need to be very careful because all around us at all times there's a pressure to assimilate into the culture that we're in. Uh, Ralph Davis, in commenting on this, says, we must retain a distinct separation from our culture while mounting an active opposition to it, or else we will blend with it. We are still called to this separation from and combat with our own godless culture. This is the ongoing challenge. The Bible says it slightly differently. I put 1 John 2 verses 15 and following in your outline. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And here's, here's the challenge, right, is to serve God and to be in the world, but to not love the world and the things of the world. And this is the question that we're all constantly being faced with. Are we going to embrace the world's formula for prosperity and happiness and success or not? And that's essentially what they were doing. They, they embraced their cult, that, that, that pagan culture's ideas about where success was found. And that's what led them to be worshiping Baal and to be intermarrying with the people here. And this is a constant challenge for us today. It's one of the reasons I think this book is very relevant to us today. There are soul-destroying ideas about gender and sexuality that are prevalent in our culture today. And, and it's, it's not just that the culture is satisfied if you say nothing. The culture wants to force you to affirm things that are evil. And, and this is where we find ourselves today, is that we have to resist. At some level, we have to resist or else we will find ourselves being swept along and assimilated. And this is what the warning is. Cultural assimilation is always looming over us. Well, fourthly, we see also here that turning away from serving God is not a workable solution. So lest we think maybe it would just be easier to give up uh, serving the Lord altogether. It would would increase the the number of eligible uh, uh, people for me to marry. It would make my life a lot simpler if I did that. Uh, This scripture clarifies that's not at all the case. Uh, Verse 14 Uh, summarizes it, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And I'm pretty sure this is not something that any of us wants to invite into our lives. It's a terrifying prospect that God's anger would burn hot against his people. But recognize this this is a holy, righteous jealousy. Uh, as it says in, in verse 12, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. This was the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Th- this is the God who had done all these things for them. 
And this is the God who has done all this for you, who has saved you from your sins, who has brought you into his family. And, and so the idea that you would turn away from him is outrageous. And of course, this is going to get God's reaction and God's response. Uh, one commentator describes this movement of the people as going from commitment to complacency to compromise. Another one says amnesia uh, promotes or produces apostasy. And uh, this idea of turning away from God. I put a quote in your outline from Barry Webb who says apostasy is the renunciation of something you once professed to believe. And apostates are self-made. They are not the victims of others' choices. So children, that's a big word, apostasy. It means turning away from what you used to believe. Now, isn't it interesting uh, that Dr. Webb says um, apostates are self-made. They are not the victims of others' choices. Why does he make that statement? Uh, I think it's partly because in our culture, we've seen some very high-profile examples of apostasy. Only, you know what it's called today, uh, deconversion. It's got a, a dressed-up name, deconversion. And uh, one, of the, one of the recent ones was Joshua Harris, uh, who divorced his wife, uh, quit his pastorate, uh, renounced all of his writings, and is now uh, actively fighting against the faith. And, and what seems to be almost always common in these situations is that the people who turn away blame other people for their decision. Uh, they, they don't take responsibility, you know, this is just because I want to sin. And uh, I've decided, I, you know, it's, it's a lot more consistent if I just turn away. And, and, and so this is why he's saying apostates aren't made by others, right? They're not the victims of others' choices. They are self-made. And so this is why God is punishing these people. I think it's really easy when we read this to say, well, uh, it must be their parents' fault. Uh, it's not their parents' fault. It's not the Canaanites' fault. It's nobody's fault but theirs. They knew better. And they chose not to keep following God. And so this is why God says uh, in verse 14, his anger was hot. He delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. God had warned them about this, and so God's just doing what he had warned them he would do. Now, we're going to come back to this next time and see that there's, there's actually tremendous grace and that God keeps working with them. But recognize at this point that the decision to say, yeah, I'm just going to be done with this and turn away, it's not, it's not a workable solution. It will bring the opposition of God. And so this is why you, you children, again, as you listen here, you've been raised in the church and, and you know these things. You've been exposed to these things. Your parents have prayed for you. They've taught you about God and about Jesus Christ. And if you grow up and turn away from it, 
there will be very, very significant complications and difficulties in your life. And, and the Bible would spare you this, would warn you against this. This is why we read from Hebrews 6 earlier. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I think that's a beautiful way to describe what we experience in the church we taste of the good word of God. We see the work of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're partakers of his work. And whatever problems you or I think we have in serving God, the decision not to serve God is going to make things even worse. And so I would just encourage any of you who, are, who have doubts or who have questions or who are wonder about things, talk to your parents, talk to Pastor Philip and talk to me because these are important questions to get answered. And there's much at stake here, that this assimilation into the culture is always a threat to us, but turning away, turning away from God altogether creates an even worse situation. And finally, we see in our text that persevering faith in your day is possible through the one who took God's anger away from you. There, there's much more going on here than just hey, the next generation failed. And, and we're going to see more about that in the next sermon. But what I would have you notice here is, again, what it tells us in verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. It is possible to serve God faithfully, to be buried honorably, as a servant of the Lord. And Joshua and his comrades show us that this is the case. And the reason it is the case is because of the one that Joshua points us to. Joshua is one of those characters in the Bible that's presented to us as almost completely without sin. That's not the case for Abraham or Jacob or Moses or Aaron or David. But for Joshua, he always trusted God. He always obeyed God. He always had this remarkable courage and, and led the people uh, as God wanted him to. In every possible way, Joshua is presented to us as a perfect servant of God. And that's how he's described here, the servant of the Lord in verse 8. Now we know Joshua wasn't really a perfect human being, but the scripture just doesn't tell us about any of his weaknesses. And that's because Joshua is meant to be for us a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only truly perfect servant of the Lord. And Jesus' name in Greek is Joshua in Hebrew. That name is the same name. It means Savior. And that's who Jesus Christ was. Jesus came fighting the Lord's battles. Always. Never shirking. Never afraid to do what he was called to do. And it's in Christ and Christ alone that people like you and me have hope. Because if we're honest about it, we don't do a good job fighting against assimilation in our culture. 
we, we aren't as faithful as we should be. And, and this manifests itself in many ways in our lives. But not only did Jesus come and serve God perfectly, Jesus is also the one who took away God's anger. Because you realize, because you and I don't serve God faithfully as we should, what it says here is also accurate of us. The anger of the Lord was hot against them. God's righteous anger is against everyone who sins against God and goes against his way. And that would be your and my situation as well if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ came and suffered the anger of God. The anger of God burned hot against Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And because Jesus absorbed that for people like you and me, we can be forgiven and given grace so that we can try to serve him as a faithful generation in our day. And so when the author of Hebrews writes, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. There is that word of hope because not because we're resting in our own strength, but because in the grace of that perfect servant, Jesus Christ, the one who took away God's anger from us, we can be faithful in our day and we can teach the faith and we can see another generation growing up that will also serve the Lord faithfully. Every generation must serve the Lord in its own day. That's, we can't do that on our own, but we can do it through the perfect servant, Jesus Christ, who took the Lord's anger away from us. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do that. Heavenly Father, we recognize that these are difficult words. Uh, they speak of a generation who turned away from you and, uh, and suffered for it. We see, Lord, in this text also a reminder that there were those who served you faithfully. And uh, we recognize that through our perfect servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who willingly that took your anger upon himself so that we could be spared. Through him, uh, there is forgiveness and there is a way to be a faithful servant. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us even as we go out into the coming week into a culture that is uh, trying relentlessly to uh, cause us to assimilate and to fit in, that you would give us the strength that we need uh, to live not according to the culture of this world, but to the culture of heaven as we live according to your word. Uh, we pray for the grace we need to do that. We thank you that you forgive us when we fail. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, and we pray that there are any here that are questioning their faith, that you would uh, come alongside and help us and help us to help one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we will respond back to God's word by singing from Psalm 78, Selection A. And I picked this one because it speaks about teaching the next generation uh, the truths and the works of God. And this is very much our desire that we would know uh, God's works, that we would celebrate them, but that we would also teach them to the next generation, even as the third stanza says, that children yet unborn might know and their descendants lead to trust in God, 
to recall God's works and his commandments heed. That is our prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand.